Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There are some real upsides to living in cities. But here's a downside. Human density makes it easy for disease to spread. Which leads us, says urbanist Richard Florida, to a paradox. If you look at the, the course of human history from the plagues in, in London, the Black Plague in Europe, uh, cholera epidemics, the Spanish flu epidemic, uh, none of them have really made a dent in this great force of urbanization. Florida is a professor at the University of Toronto's School of Cities and the co-founder and editor-at-large of the website City Lab. So I think the, in the long run, uh, cities and urbanization will be fine. The question is how do we best protect ourselves, our communities, our loved ones, the vulnerable, and all of us during the short run. That's really the question we're asking now. In many cities and metro areas all over the world, the answer has been a virtual lockdown. Nobody on the Spanish steps, an occasional car passing through Times Square, emptied out beaches in Southern California. But, as Florida notes, the lure of living close to other people, it's endured. And empty streets are going to fill again. What's surprising, Florida says, is that cities will be shaped perhaps forever by the moment we're living in now. The coronavirus pandemic of 2020 could change how we work, how much money some of us make, and why we move from place to place. One thing that's gonna happen, he argues, is the acceleration of a pretty recent trend, the rise of delivery. Grocery delivery, clothing delivery, everything delivery. And this won't just be because of convenience, says Florida. It will also be because of fear. Because fear, as it turns out, could stick around a lot longer than we think. Certain histories of the 1918 pandemic suggest that it took several years until people felt comfortable going out in large gatherings. So we're all going to be worried. And, 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 and here's the other thing. We've just completed uh, and released, we did it in quick turnaround, a report for the Brookings Institution on how to ready our cities for the great reopening. Because after this lockdown, let's say it lasts a month or six weeks, in, in, in China it lasted five weeks, something in that period. Mm -hmm. We're not quite sure because we have to make public health our number one priority. But when it ends, we're not just going to pop back open. Um, we're going to have to ready these Main Street businesses. And in that report, I talk about, well, one of the things I did was go around and talk to doctors and dentists, medical professionals. When this is over, how are you going to reopen your medical practice? Oh, well, we're going to have to do temperature checks. We're going to have to have uh, thermostats and scanners. Huh. Uh, we're going to have to do pre-screening right. calls with our patients. We're going to have to put fewer people in the waiting room and bring them right to private rooms. Now, you're not going to do that in a retail shop, but you, know, you see these images out of Denmark where there's circles painted on the floor. Um, in retail shops and mom-and-pop businesses, restaurants, they're going to have to space those tables. Um, so I think communities are going to have to set up not only funds, you know, working with philanthropy, working with state and federal government, working on loan programs to help Main Street business survive, and not only in the short term, because business is not going to be act up to normal when they get back and running. They're going to have to have SWAT teams and teams that can go in there and help those. Think about your hair salon. Uh, nail salon. Yeah. You're not just going to yeah, go yeah. back in there for right. an appointment if nothing's been done. Uh, they're going to have to be made safe and secure. So one of the things we call for in this Brookings report is that communities need to mobilize now. And the other thing, you know, you think about how much our artistic and cultural creative infrastructure, and not just of major venues like the Metropolitan Opera, you know, or the great ballets or symphonies, 
all of those places are going to have to be retrofitted. Maybe seats are going to have to be kept empty. Maybe they'll need to institute temperature checks. But what about these small music venues and art galleries and, and theaters and you know, off-Broadway-like independent theaters? All of that stuff is going to have to be retrofitted. It's not just going to spring back into place. You know, we're going to be dealing with secondary and tertiary waves of this pandemic until a vaccine is developed or until we figured out a therapy that works. Uh, so, yes, I think we're going to need a focus, a real focus in our cities, not, not from the top down, not from the president, not from the federal government, but in our cities. And actually coming out of this, you know, the cities that figure out a way to keep their creative economies in place, that figure out a way to support their main street businesses, they're going to become more attractive. And since so many more people are going to want, want to work remotely and are going to be looking for safe places to live, the places that are safe and secure, that have exciting Main Street businesses, that have a vibrant creative economy that did all these things, are going to make themselves more attractive to people in the, in the long run. So, yes, there's a bleak cloud right now, but as we reopen, if we do it strategically, if we do what we need to do, we, we could see places begin to prosper that do this right. Let me... Let me dive into this a little bit, because when you were talking about the 1918 flu, it sounds like you're saying that people were not just scared, even in the medium term, like even in the, you know, 12 months or 18 months, even in the time that maybe the flu was really something they could catch. But it sounds like you're saying for years later, the fear basically like we've, you know, there's like a mental scarring and people kind of remember that and they don't want to be as close because they've sort of practiced not being that close and they're worried about the repercussion. Is that is that right? Yeah. And so imagine our future a year, 18 months out. Uh, mm -hmm. And how do you reopen big arenas like Madison Square Garden? What do you do? What do you do to put them in place to make people feel safe? How do you reopen airports? Do you need temperature checks? Uh, do you need spacing in the waiting lines and queues? So, and, and, I was going to say there's a small there's a small diner I really like. It's like tiny. It's limited in space. If they could only seat people at every other table, I don't even know how they would make any money. Exactly. So we have to be thinking about this now, and I know that it is incredibly urgent. Uh, with all the technology and capability we have now, we have to stamp this darn thing out as fast as we can and keep it locked down. But we can't just be saying we're going to pop back open because there is this scarring. People are scared. I think, you know, I hate to say it, we're going to be looking like consumers that we used to, when we, we'd go to an Asian city, when I would pop it out in, in Shanghai or Singapore and Hong Kong, see all these people with masks running around and, you know, uh, not, not giving handshakes. We're going to look like that for a while, and maybe we'll never go hmm. back to normal. You know, uh, hmm. you know, there is a risk, and pandemics, I mean, these great ones seem to only come around every 100 years, but there are smaller-scale pandemics that, that have come around. Uh, so I remember when I moved to Toronto, it's a funny story, you know, uh, 12 years ago, I went to see my family doctor, and when I went to shake my hand, he stuck his elbow in my face. And I looked at him like he was from the moon, and he said, no, that's the SARS shake. You know, because Toronto had seen that SARS oh, epidemic yeah, yeah. that didn't hit right, as many. Right. That's the SARS shake, he said, Richard. That's the way we do it here. Well, we know that, that some of this stuff has been mitigated in Asian countries. They were more vigilant. They had better testing, but because they practice better health. So I, wouldn't, I think we have to take this into account now. If we want our Main Street businesses up and running, if we want our local hair salon and nail salon and local diner, if we want our local coffee shop or our local music venue to reopen, we got to equip them with technical assistance. You know, it's like 
the way we made our farms productive, we had an agricultural extension service that went around the country, you know, 100 or 150 years ago, giving advice on technical and management and scientific assistance. Lord God, we've got to do that with our small businesses now so that they can reopen effectively. And I do think the other thing about taking the fear away, why are people so scared? People are scared, not just they're going to catch the darn thing, but that we don't have enough hospital beds, ICU beds, and ventilators. If you made a guarantee with the American people that said, we're going to mass mobilize to make sure you have an ICU bed uh, and you're going to have a ventilator. And here I think what we're doing is actually pretty darn good. You know, when you hear what Governor Cuomo was talking about in New York last week with the Army Corps of Engineers outfitting the Javits Center, uh, turning college dormitories into ICU beds, taking over hotels, and, and making ventilators. And then, you know, because this is a localized outbreak, luckily we have a decentralized system of local initiative and state initiative with great governors like Governor Cuomo uh, and Governor Newsom in California really taking the initiative, great states. But, you know, because these are localized outbreaks, not every place gets hit identically at the same time. So you can imagine moving around a capacity, uh, setting up capacity in dormitories and convention centers in different cities, moving ventilators around, mobilizing medical staff, you know, recruiting uh, uh, medical students, recruiting college students, recruiting nursing students, bringing capacity where it needs to be as it is needed. So I think if we could guarantee people that they'd have the hospital care and the ventilator if they need them, they'd be a lot less anxious because they realize if they catch it, it'll be terrible. Well, it might be terrible, but they're not going to die. That them and their loved ones are not going to die. And I think that's the fear now, that we're not going to get the care we need if we catch the darn thing. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Karen Miller. I'm talking with Richard Florida from the University of Toronto. He's also the editor-at-large of City Lab from The Atlantic. Um, I wonder, one of the things we've seen in towns, in cities, all across the country and across the world, really, is that part of the frontline workers, when you think about who's indispensable during this pandemic, have strangely been, uh, apart from, of course, doctors and nurses and, and, you know, ambulance drivers and so on, people who work in grocery stores, people who deliver medications, people who work in pharmacies, all, all sorts of things, they simultaneously are not paid that well. They don't really have health care, ironically, very often for the health for the health uh, issues that might arise. Does that does who is on the front lines? Will that change in our view? And will we value certain kinds of people more? It has to. Um, we can't succeed as a society when nearly half of our workers are low paid service workers. Those emergency workers, nurses' aides, physicians' assistants, delivery workers, the, the warehouse workers, grocery workers, clerks. Right, right. Look, if we pay them a pittance, and, you know, people have said this, you know, maybe one of the contributors to spread was the fact that some of these people working in old age homes can't make a go of it on, on, on one job. So they're moving between three and four nursing homes. And, and look, we've got we've to protect our frontline providers. Our doctors, I mean, look at the heroes of the emergency rooms, of the ICUs, going in there without the appropriate protective gear. So number one, appropriate protective gear for everyone, and not just doctors and emergency providers, grocery workers, delivery workers. All of them need the gear they need to, to, to help us 
during this time and in, in, in the 12 to 18 months that, that are beyond this time till we get back to something approaching normal, they need to be paid for their work. This group of people, our heroes, deserve to be members of the middle class, and it will make our society stronger and more resilient. They'll buy more stuff. They'll demand more stuff. They'll buy more homes. It, 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 it's, it's just the right thing to do at every level. So, yeah, one of the things we talk about in our Brookings report is that in the, in the medium run, developing strategies to upgrade the work and pay, health and safety, and provide the protections these workers need and the health benefits is critical to the long-run survival of our cities. You know, imagine if these people just said, no, I'm not going to take the risk anymore. Go, go fend for yourself. We, we couldn't function. So right. they are the heroes, right. and we need to – and I think we will. Do you worry um, that, you know, if you were to just sort of come back in a year or two and, and look around cities that – there just be empty storefronts all over the place, you know, restaurants that never could reopen and, you know, kids stores that never could reopen and and, and bars and theater uh, venues and on and on that just like the hit they took was just too big. And they were and they were maybe too small for the government to to track them down and, and keep them alive. I mean, I just wonder if you worry about that sometimes. So yes and no. I, I worry about the trauma to the small business owner who's put her, his or her you know, lifeblood into making a business work and, and the hit they'll take. And, and, and that's why I say in this Brookings report, uh, cities and communities have to pull out every stop, uh, philanthropy, city programs, state programs, work with the federal government to provide them with loans and supports. I think it's not only business, it's the nonprofit community. The nonprofit theaters and the nonprofit music venues, the nonprofit arts organizations that work hand to mouth. How do we get them the support they need? But no, I don't. I don't think our cities are going to be emptied. What I worry about is the trauma to individuals. I think uh, new businesses, new enterprises, new music venues, places will be reconstituted. Um, I do think we'll have a breather, which makes these spaces more affordable. I said this in 2008. I said, we're going to have a breather. We should take advantage of it. Um, we should think about it. And we didn't. And then affordability became unaffordability and housing prices and uh, real estate prices skyrocketed. What I worry about more is this kind of hyper-materialism, shallowness, this hyper-individualism that seems to be a track we've been on for the past 20 or 30 years. I hope this snaps us out of that. I hope this hits the pause button there. I hope we can become a more civically connected, socially minded society. Not, you know, Stephen Colbert used to say, I got you in the old show, I got mine, Jack. I hope to God <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is something that gets us beyond that. And, and that's my big worry, that, that somehow because we are so smart and our scientists are so good and our medical professionals will come up with a vaccine, I mean that we'll forget this. And yes, city life will yeah, go on, yeah. but we'll go back. And, 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 and to, to make up the point, to put the point on it, I said this before, the darn 1918 pandemic, which was horrific, which cost millions upon millions of lives, was followed by one of the shallowest periods in American life, the Roaring Twenties, the Great Gadsby Era, hmm. the thing that we point hmm, to as, right. the, as the gilded age that we were falling into. So Cities survived the pandemic, but we fell into this as a country, this age that we're almost embarrassed about, the Roaring Twenties. We look back at the 30s and 40s and 50s as the age we came together to build a middle class, to reward factory workers. 
So that's what I worry about, that, that as, as we get past this, we fall back into our old social routines and this hyper-individualized culture. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that this is going to be our wake-up call. It's going to be a wake-up call for my kids, too. Uh, but, but, but I'm realistically optimistic because that's the pattern that I worry about. You know, I wonder just about millions and millions of people um, have been told work remotely, like not doctors, not sanitation workers, but but a lot of people, a lot of people are working remotely who did not normally do that or did it maybe from time to time, but but not as a matter of course. Um, does this change things, do you think, when we go back to work? Will as many of us actually go back to work? I should say I'm talking to you from my closet, <laughs> and you are talking to me from your house. So you know, I I I I'm speaking from experience here. So no, I think I think remote work and um, the semi quarantine life is here to stay. Uh, elements of it, I think that many people are going to find remote work to be more effective. Um, that those silly meetings that are now physically dangerous, that take up so much time, are not warranted. You can do those mm-hmm. for, uh, mm-hmm. uh, via Zoom. That having giant conferences, maybe a lot of that can be done better virtually. Uh, a lot of education is going to move online. And I don't think just um, college education. Uh, elementary schools and high schools are moving to this. I think many people are going to find that some of this stuff is done very effectively online. There's other stuff that's not done very effectively online. So, look, here's what I think will happen. For those professions that depend really on density, not just face-to-face interaction, but for career mobility, like high tech, like finance, like media, like journalism, where your personal network is essential, those things are going to cluster in cities. For other things that don't require that or for people who don't need to be in that mix, remote work is going to be an increasingly uh, big option. But here's the rub on all of this. I don't think this is going to spread us out. There are a lot of people saying, oh, my God, remote work, telework, uh, computers are going to spread us out. We're all going to go running to the country. And, of course, that has happened. People have, you know, scattered out of big cities into the countryside, especially those with means. Uh, but right. but I think what's likely to happen is if airports and t- air transportation is really impacted for a prolonged period, which it's likely to be, I think what it's going to take to get our airports up and running again is going to be way bigger than what happened in the wake of the terrorist attacks of 9-11 to make them safe and secure and healthy hmm. and you feel comfortable on a tube with right. other, you know, from anywhere from a half an hour to a 10-hour right, flight. Right. Um, if air travel is impacted, and you can't commute as easily from a remote location into a hub like New York or Boston or Washington or San Francisco or L.A. I could go on. That's going to mean people whose livelihoods depend on those industries are going to have to move back into the center, into where that center is, the the media center in Los Angeles, the academic center in Boston, the music center in Nashville, you know what I'm saying, the tech center in the Bay Area. Right, right, right. And and so if air travel is impacted, it's going to – we call it geographic inequality, spatial inequality. It may be that, that this crisis actually makes that worse and that we're going to have to think even longer and harder about how to mitigate it. So, so my hunch is everything's going to pull in multiple directions, but it's, it's not simply that this is going to spread us out. It may cause cer- certain very high-paying, high-wage, very important things to cluster even more than they are now. Richard Florida is the co-founder and editor-at-large of City Lab. He's also a professor at the University of Toronto. 
thanks for coming back on the show and talking to us at this time. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's such a troubled time, but I, I do think um, there's great light at the end of this tunnel. Our cities will be back, and if we stay vigilant, we'll probably participate in one of the greatest global public health events uh, in modern history. So thank you for having me on and being able to contribute. Thank you. On our website, we're going to have a link to the Brookings article that Richard mentioned. It's a 10-point preparedness plan for communities from pandemic-proofing airports to ensuring that local restaurants survive. And as I sign off here, it has obviously been a crazy, very stressful couple of weeks. So from everybody who helps put together Innovation Hub, we're now working from our closets and living rooms and our kitchen offices. We are sending the very best from us to you and your family. Until next time, from PRX and WGBH Radio, this is Innovation Hub.